When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to new and returning listeners. I am Dr. Danica Ramsey Brumberg. I'm one of the co-hosts of the New Books and Irish Studies podcast channel for New Books Network. For today's episode, I am pleased to welcome Dr. John Soderberg, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology and Sociology at Denison University and the author of Animals and Sacred Bodies in Early Medieval Ireland: Religion and Urbanism in Clom- at Clomac Noise. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Danica. I'm very happy to be here. Would you tell us a little about yourself? Yeah, as you said, I, I teach archaeology at, at Denison University in, in central Ohio. Uh, before that, I managed the evolutionary anthropology labs at the University of Minnesota. Uh, I also did my PhD at the University of Minnesota, working with uh, Peter Wells there. And I uh, also have an MA in Irish studies from Boston College. Um, as an archaeologist, I focus on animal remains uh, and the insights they offer to us about how people organize their world, you know, partly in obvious ways, like how they get their food and those kinds of things, but also in terms of how we organize our relationships with other people through food. And for those un- listeners unfamiliar with your book, what is it about? Uh, the basic question I'm asking is um, you know, why monasteries became such important places in medieval Ireland. Uh, and the book focuses on on trying to put together some answers for one place, Clon McNoise, uh, an important, important monastery in central Ireland. Uh, I guess I was originally drawn to archaeology um, as I began to learn how little we know about what life was like in places like Clon McNoise. Um, you think of all the thousands of people who would have moved in and out of the place, the thousands of people for whom it would have been a, a key feature of the landscape. And it's really hard to find a lot of evidence about their lives and their motives outside of archaeology. Uh, so, so I wanted to focus on that. Uh, and in the book, um, well, I guess there's, there's a lot of important work on uh, the ways that uh, places like Clomac Noise serve to kind of consolidate control over territory and people. But I, I have trouble seeing that dynamic as enough for explaining why Clomac Noise became so important. Um, so the book talks a lot about people walking animals to Clomac Noise. And you know, I, those movements would have been essential experiences for all those thousands of people moving in and out of the place. Um, and I think that that register of, of human experience is important. Um, so I'm trying to put the, put together the book as a way to try and figure out how, why is it important? And through approaching this with the, this um, avenue of research with Clonmac Noise, interdisciplinary research appears to be a cornerstone because you don't just go into archaeology, you also go into uh, anthropology and sociology as well as uh, sculpture as well. 
Why was that a crucial element to your research? One of the things, I've been lucky enough to to spend my graduate career in, in very interdisciplinary places. I, Irish studies at Boston is pulling things together. And, and earlier I said I, I teach archaeology. I suppose actually what I should have said is that I teach anthropology. Um, and I love how anthropology departments pull together people with just deeply incompatible perspectives on things. And you know, if things go wrong, we sit and stare across the table at each other and not say much. But when we get it right, that, that just kind of opens up how you can think about things and let you get out of these little tight communities assumptions that we, you know, all the zoo archaeologists end up thinking kind of the same way. And so you get out of those, those little assumptions and, and you can, you can start to reframe problems and, 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 and also see the ways in which different d- disciplines are dealing with the same questions in different ways. Uh, so it's a lot of fun terrifying too, because, you know, I, I know I'm getting it wrong when I move outside of the, my core. And so apologies to, to uh, everybody out there for the ways I've uh, not not tread lightly on, on the assumptions I should have. No, but it brings a lot of different ideas together. And I think there, there needs to be more interdisciplinary. I, I, I'm personally an interdisciplinary researcher. So I think there's so much more information we can gain from bringing things together. I agree. It really does enrich things. Yeah. So on page three, I thought this was a uh, make a comment, and I think this is really interesting. You mentioned that, quote, devotion to one character includes possibilities for different tales built around different characters. How did this inform upon your research? Yeah. I, and I suppose that in some ways it's a, it's a defense of interdisciplinary work. Um, that, that, that section of the book, I'm introducing a, a story from Adathnon's life of Columba about Columbus showing up at some farmer's house one night and saying, can I spend the night? And the guy says, yes. And he ends up giving him 105 cattle out of it. Um, and scholarship on that little tale is, is really surprisingly settled. Um, there, there's, there's a really strong consensus that, you know, kind of gifts like that yield control and the farmer ends up kind of becoming a subordinate of the monastery and it gets into um, lots of thoughts about how clientage work and they're you know, sort of working in that sort of mode quite a bit. Um, and that ignores this other part of it, which I, I, there, there's a surprisingly little amount of commentary. It says you, you can use these cattle for anything you want it, as long as it's for the purpose of charity. Um, and that I think that that puts an interesting spin on it. Um, and uh, the, if you look at it as uh the stranger arriving at the door and figuring out how to take advantage of you. I mean, you, you kind of, there's that, that you're, you're assuming that that's some psychopath that's ready to lay, rage your larder. Um, and that, that's a, that's a choice about how to see what shows up at your door. Um, and um, that the, the way that we end up making those choices in any one discipline um, has layers and layers of things which drive us one direction or the other. Um, but we end up focusing on that character to try and make sense of the whole story. Um, and I, I think there are, there are other ways to look at that, that stranger at the door. Um, and then looking at these relations of different people together, one of the main elements of your book is looking at clomic noise from the urban perspective of looking at it with urbanism. The debate around this, I know it can be what makes a site urban is particularly tricky, uh, especially when it comes to definitions. What makes a site urban, particularly a monastery, and how do you define, quote, the word urban? Yeah. Um, I, I, think, I think urban settlements are one of the most fascinating things humans have ever done. Um, and uh, they are 
living in a circumstance where a group of people cannot feed themselves. Um, you know, that you, you end up having to look to strangers to look outside of your own community in order to figure out how to get enough to eat, get enough raw materials to live. Um, and, and that's a, that's a, that's a, I mean, it's a fascinating transformation in human society around the world and it happens around the world. That's something that we get into. And, um, I think the questions about the definitions of urbanism get snarled up in answering the question, well, how do people go about getting other people to feed them? I mean, you know, that, that's the question. And I think a lot of the, the debates about definitions and what qualifies as a um, urban center or not, it, it circle around what qualifies as a legitimate way that people go about feeding themselves. Um, and, and for a long time, um, there was a, particularly in the mid 20th century, there was a really strong set of assumptions that the way that that happened was to subordinate a hinterland. Um, and so you get kind of this parasitic view of urbanism, um, and, and what it is, what we you know, why, why it is that people give up their food, uh, which echoes back to that story I was telling earlier about Adamnon, which is that, and it's the same assumption about who is that waiting at your door. Um, and, um, if you think of other ways in which people could make those arrangements work, um, then you start to get what people usually call other definitions of urbanism, but it's not really other definitions of urbanism. It's other ways that you can accomplish the solution. Um, how can you get, how can you get uh, people to give you food um, and um, all the other, you know, all the other things that go along with that. And when looking at this within your book, you discuss, I, I know we talked about this with interdisciplinary before, but you bring up economic and anthropological theory in reference to archaeological sites, but you also talk about the archaeology of religion. In your opinion, why has the, I guess, the archaeology of religion been overlooked or sidelined in comparison to the other ideas? Yeah. Um, a lot of it is uh, kind of it was the fault of archaeology. For, for a long time, uh, the, the a real consensus in the discipline is, well, we just can't talk about it. Um, there's an assumption about what religion is, that it's about ideas or something that's non-material in some sort of way. And there's a really strong set of assumptions that archaeologists could talk about how you get food, how you get your raw materials, how you make your still tools or whatever. But when you start getting at ideas, somehow or other, the, 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 the assumption was that, that the archaeological evidence just doesn't contain that. Um, and um, people will, I mean, so as people's view of what religion is started to shift a little bit, and as people see it more about what people, uh, as more about what people do and how they uh, arrange their lives and the rest of their world, um, people began to see that, that, that it's possible to do an archaeology religion. Um, but so, but a lot of it is, you know, archaeologists just weren't talking about it for a long time. Um, and there, and there's a real sense that you couldn't really talk about it. Um, that, that somehow or other is speculative as opposed to, you know, other more material things. Um, no. And then how does this then the archeology span of religion define an alternative view of the sacred space at Clon McNoise and how is this then expressed in the archeology? span yeah, yeah. I, I don't. It, it doesn't necessarily uh, define uh, an an alternate view of sacred space. There are, there are a lot of strains in religious studies and a lot of ways of understanding kind of how religion sits in the world that that um, see the process of making sacred as kind of 
pulling away from the world, as creating a coordinate that's, that's separated out from whatever's profane or physical or something like that. Um, and that creates um, uh, you know, kind of a sense that you're purifying space or you're setting it aside from the rest of the world. Um, and that, that what's happened in, in, in a lot of areas, that that's kind of set up a narrative that talks about control of the space. You have to defend the border of it. You have to you know, get a hold of it somehow or other. And that sets in, you know, sets up a line of questioning. Well, who gets a hold of it? It turns out that you know, people a lot of power get a hold of it. And then you sort of go along and um, explain religion uh, in a way that um, you know fits it into kind of political context. And it's a very instrumental view of religion. Um, what I think sets um, the, where the archaeology of religion I think sets up a different set of possibilities is a, a perspective that, that comes fairly recently, but it's been it's been floating around in religious studies that. Um, sacred is not about removing something from the world. It's about articulating the world. It's about connecting things together, um, bundling things together. And there, there are a lot of traditions where that, that's a, that's a key way of, um, making something sacred. Um, and in that case, the transformation comes out of connecting and articulating and the transformative possibilities comes out of the way that things are connected. Um, and for me, that's where I think the archaeology religion starts to give you a different sense of why you have cities, a different sense of why people do all kinds of things uh, in medieval Ireland. So I think that so it's it's the view of how how religion works as much as just talking about religion, I think. Does that make sense? Nope, that makes perfect sense. And then thinking about Clonmacnoise, I did probably put the cart before the horse mentioning it before, but why did you choose Clonmacnoise as your yeah. case study? Yeah, yeah, it's a, a lot of it's luck. <laughs> you know, I, I happened to um, be looking for a PhD topic and looking to get started on all this while Heather King was doing her excavations there. And she was kind enough to let me join and help and then to work on the animal bone. So a lot of it is just good luck uh, and kindness of people saying, sure, go ahead and work on it. Um, and, I, and, I knew, and I knew I wanted to work on monasteries. I, I, I guess as I got further into it, though, um, what became clear is that whatever is happening at Club McNoise um, was looking a lot like Dublin. Um, and really, where, where in many ways they just weren't, you know, the, the, the archaeology wasn't that different in certain kinds of ways. Um, but whatever is, you know, driving Dublin, it's not the same thing that's driving a Columbic noise. So you need, you need it, somehow or other, you need to have a contextual explanation that, that makes sense. And, and whatever is motivating Columbic noise is not the same thing as motivating Dublin. So it seemed like a good opportunity to uh, ask some questions of, of, of the phenomenal archaeology that Heather King did there. Um, and then thinking about Columbic noise in this context, how do the sacred and the settlement converge at this particular site? Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I, that, that's where, um, I get into, um, my orientation on people walking animals to the site. Um, I, I think the settlement and the sacred part converge there. Cause I, I, I think I genuinely believe that part of what makes, and maybe a very important part of what makes the site sacred is the fact that people were bringing their animals from across, you know, a good, good section of the area to Columbic noise. Um, and 
you know, in, in that image, you get sort of, I don't know, kind of like a Mediterranean sacrifice march or something like that. Um, but they're, they're, they're just brought there for food. I mean, they're, 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 they're brought there to be slaughtered for the most mundane purposes. People are making, you know, making tools out of their bones and eating them and making, you know, leather out of their hides and those sorts of things. Um, but that is bringing people together from uh, across a huge swath of of the of central ireland there and beginning to create ways uh for them to connect with each other that, that wouldn't be possible other other than that um and and i think you know we neglect that as an important piece of, of why these places exist um and if you think about um why these are special places um i was, I was just thinking when you, i was thinking earlier today that you know, that that um Heather King's excavations were in the new graveyard, which is an ongoing graveyard. And, um, you know, there, while we're excavating there and while you visit there today, this is still, you know, people are burying their loved ones there. This is deeply personal engagement with the place. Um, and, I, and I think there's a long history. I mean, people were bringing things there um, and uh, connected with it and experiencing um, the, the hubbub of being there. And thinking about these different relations, um, you talk about uh, with all these different ideas, mm-hmm. how is the relationship of archaeology as a religion with biology? So bringing those two together, because you look at animal bones within the religious context. How is that similar to I get the relationship of anthropology and economics, which you also talk about is has an interesting relationship? Yeah, this is, this, this is a fascinating one. So, um, you know, in, you know, we're familiar with, with neoclassical economics and the emphasis on, you know, maximizing individuals and you're driven to increase your profits and, and you know, the, the whole society comes out of that. Um, Biological anthropology was even stronger on that emphasis than kind of traditional neoclassical economics is that, that, you know, people, beings on the planet are driven by the need to maximize their reproductive success. And whatever you can do to do that, you will go about and you can list all sorts of horrible things that, that you know, people do to each other for that reason. Well, and that, that's, that's set up, you know, with sociobiology and that set up a very particular view of, of of humans and human society that was, that was very strong in the mid 20th century. Um, and, and, um, there were dissenting voices to that, that view all along that there was something that's being missed in that process, but they got remarkably little traction. Um, and then in the early two thousands, that's, that circumstance changed. Um, and the, the, um, research coalesced and, and there became space for perspectives and all of this, this flood of fascinating research came out about how not in a metaphorical way, not in an abstract cultural way, but on a basic biological and evolutionary level, what's interesting about humans is the degree to which we are evolved to be all entangled with each other. Um, and, um, kind of you know, theories of intersubjectivity and those sorts of things, which you normally think of as the, you know, the realm of cultural anthropology, those kind of things. But, but there is now a full robust uh, amount of research in biology about the degree to which that you can identify that, uh, that set of interconnectedness. Um, and that's, that, uh, led to a huge amount of really fascinating research, um, on, thinking about, you know, how is it, you know, that, that human beings to get together and, and what's so important about human, human beings getting together. Um, there's a wonderful book um, by the um, biological anthropologist, Sarah Hurdy, uh, called Mothers and Others, um, which is um, 
grounding the, the very beginnings of being human in kind of changing around so that we are interdependent on each other and sharing childcare and those kinds of things. Um, and, and that, so interestingly, that for me became a, a source of a whole bunch of ideas for how to think about, well, what is different about, it? I mean, I, I you know, I, 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 there is something different about Claude McNoise. And, and as we talked about earlier, this long debates about, urbanism and monastic towns, that kind of stuff is, is circling around the sense there's something there, but it's really hard to grasp. And, and for me, this, this research um, gave me a way to anchor that very clearly in how people act um, and, and to start to get a sense of, well, why is it important that people were gathering there? Um, and then thinking about these different aspects going on, um, why do you think that there is such a polarization of concepts then, not just with the biology and religion, but also with the profane and the sacred? Yeah. I, I wish I could answer that question. <laughs> it, it is a fantastic one. Um, and, uh, you know, it, I mean, it, it, it really is. I mean, we, the, those, those polarities are there and I mean, maybe we depend on them um, that, you know, that we get like, that's kind of how we ground ourselves. But, um, you know, I mean, there's been, what, 20 years now of shouting at Descartes for splitting body and mind and you know, all sorts of things. I mean, they're very deeply grounded um, and it's unsettling if you know, if you, if you, um, uh, when you start to mess around with them. Uh, and I think um, thinking about the stories we started talking out with is helpful because um, when you start to see that there are these narratives for how we think of ourselves uh, as acting and kind of the, you know the fundamental things about what it means to be human, um, the, the the narratives we have clarify certain ways of being and they marginalize other ways of being. Um, and, and I think it's 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 certainly helpful to just recognize the existence of it. Why we feel compelled to do that, I. I, I <laughs> We feel comfortable with the black and white, but not necessarily the gray, which most of it right. is gray. Something ain't right. <laughs> um, and then in the book, you talk about uh, how, I know I've brought this up a little bit before, but the anthropological, humanist, and even economic discourse has not been integrated with the biological anthropology. To what extent has then biological anthropology, particularly zoo archaeology, been oh. overlooked in the study of sacred settlement? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, I mean, you know, some, some, when I was talking earlier about, um, uh, you know, religion and kind of senses of, of what makes things sacred, the dichotomy underneath that is, you know, the body and the spirit, the body and the mind, and all those sorts of things. Um, and, um, you know, it's, 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 uh, genuinely difficult to figure out. And, and I'm intentionally framing it this way. What in the world does slaughtering cattle have to do with making a place sacred? I mean, that, 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 that's, uh, that, that's addressing that assumption that sacred is about something other than that kind of really basic bodily kind of thing. Um, and, and that, that's, that, that is that change in understanding what makes the sacred is, is beginning to edge towards that, that it's possibility for seeing that, that, that is, it isn't, against being sacred. It's part of the process um, and, and connecting with the world around you. And then taking those, um, these ideas and thinking more physically about the animal remains, what do we know about the animals at Clon McNoise? Yeah. yeah. Um, lots. <laughs> um, the, I, I think the most, the most critical thing is that, um, the cattle are brought in from somewhere else. Uh, they're they're not 
uh, raising their own cattle um, in in you know, in the immediate neighborhood. They are in a circumstance where they need to figure out a way to get relation get get some sort of relationship with surrounding people. Um, and the particular relationship they got was to get um, the most elderly, most worn out individuals from the surrounding herd. So the people who are walking their cattle to climbing things are not walking their prize livestock. They are walking the animals who have lived out their reproductive lives, who are no longer main productive members of the herds there. Um, so they're, you know, essentially kind of the, the excess cattle that they're bringing into the site. Um, and, um, leaving them there um you know they and 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 well they end up they end up buried there um as just as people are buried there and then do we see any variations with the treatment of cattle and over time and are there any variations with the other types of animals that are possibly at comic noise yeah one of the striking things and and one of the things that led me to think about this idea that walking animals in is is crucial to the place is that it's a through line um, from the earliest uh, data that we have from Columbic Noise, which is probably somewhere around 700, you know, up through 1300, um, there is essentially no variation in that process. It gets a little bit more so towards the end, so the animals are a little bit older in the final, um, the final phase. But that that is an absolute through line. I mean, that is the, the a coherent core of the experience of being Columbic Noise the whole way through. Um, that doesn't change. Um, the, the um, one of the big questions, and, and you know, the, the, the monastic town debate is um, basically a question about what's the role of a market economy in uh, medieval Ireland, um, and um, a lot for a lot of people, towns are markers of the emergence of a market economy. Um, and, uh, and it wor- works very well. They, they, you know, there, there's a good reason for that. Um, and, and you can see lots of fascinating evidence about commodity production in, in um, places like uh, Dublin and elsewhere. Um, Faunal analysis has some good markers for that. Um, and those markers really only show up um, in the final phase of settlement. So that in, when, when you get into the second millennium, um, somewhere between 1,000 and about 1,300, those, those sorts of markers show up. So you do see that change over time where you're probably seeing uh, you know, broad shifts in how people are producing and exchanging things. Um, so but then, the, sorry. You know, the end of the end, well, and, and um, you know, settlement for lots of reasons ends up um, drying up essentially um, sometime after 1300. It's a good, good question about the exact date of that, um, that uh, hopefully we'll be learning about more about in the near future. But um, at some point it, 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 uh, it stops. And, and that means people stop walking their cattle to Columbic noise. That, you know, that is a key end of it. It, it remains a sacred place. Um, it remains important in certain ways, but the, the vitality that we associate with it is partly that whole provisioning thing. And do how does it compare the cattle necessarily then to, do we see the same um, patterns at other settlements, whether that be Dublin or other? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah this, this um, what you've asked me, what um, 
got me started on on Colin McNoise, um, the you know writings of of people like Finbar McCormick and and people working throughout Britain, looking at you know they're they're looking at the emergence of post Roman emergence of towns. This provisioning thing that I was talking about uh, is a major signature of that. It's you see it all over the place. So it's again and again that, that you see it. Um, that uh, is is a really um, interesting. Um, way of, of getting into that, that sort of situation. Um, but you're seeing it in a, in a very different context in Columbic noise. And, uh, then how is this concept of entanglement? You talk about entanglement throughout the book. Mm -hmm. How does, is this encapsulated by the animals? Yes. Um, well, I mean, I think, um, in, in a basic way, the fact that they're there as a demonstration of entanglement, they are, um, uh, connecting, they're entangling whatever the outlying settlements are. Um, and you're asking before about, you know, do, do you see the same patterns? Um, if you look at, you know, the smaller monasteries, they, they're farms and they, they are operating like you would expect any farmstead to look like, and they are operating the same way. And, um, they're, you know, connecting a certain local group of people, presumably, who are going to be connected with a small monastery. And then that rises to a much larger level of connection at, at, at these giant centers like, like Clon McNoise. Um, and so they are, you know, a, a physical entanglement. They are bringing, connecting and bringing things together from other places um, and um, arriving at Clon McNoise. So in some ways, it's that, that that very simple idea of entanglement, you know, entanglement becomes this big philosophical debate and we'll circle back to what makes it sacred and all these kind of things. Sacred. But, you know, fundamentally, it's, I mean, they are actually entangled. They are exchanging crucial things. Um, and then, of course, movement of people, too. Um, you know, it's um, when I talk about walking animals to Columbic Noise, part of, of what I'm hoping comes to mind is, you know, walking a pilgrimage. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's that sort of intentional walking, I think. So that then leads me actually quite nicely into my next question, which is how did transforming these animals' bodies into food as well as possibly other products make Columbic Noise sacred and a sanctuary city? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is um, what is bringing the place to life. Um, it is literally um, feeding the settlement um, in, in, in terms of, of um, actual food and raw material, but it's also um, bringing together the um the life of people. It is, it is what brought people to live there. I mean, it is important to remember these, these are places where lots of people lived. Um, there are, and, and as far as I can tell, a pretty wide range of people. Um, and the, um, array of people who would have seen themselves as part of Clum McNoise is quite wide. Um, and you know, that would have been presumably a lot of people throughout the landscape would have, would have felt that identification. Um, and, that identification is worked out in all kinds of material products. I keep talking about cattle because that's all I see a lot of cattle. Um, there are lots of things with other animals. I, I look at them too, but also, I mean, they're you know, bringing products to, um, and the physical movement, the physical arrival of bodies and products at Columbic Noise, I think is very important. Um, and then 
especially because at monasteries, we tend to think of them as being monks, but we have, there are a lot more, as you said, a lot more people that live there, both secular, whether they're farming, well, not necessarily farming in the urban areas, but making products um, from those raw materials. Yeah. Yeah. And I, 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 you know, I would assume that the people who were walking their cattle to call McToys, they would feel part of it. They would, they would, I mean, the purpose of walking them there is to feel part of this thing. Um, That, that is, um, you know, a sacrifice, a devotional act or something like that. It's not, you know, it, it, we think of it in kind of narrow economic terms of, you know, rational maximization of products. Like it, I mean, it is that, but it's also, I mean, these, it, these are arriving at a very special place and they would have been a signature contribution of these people to that place. Moving from this idea, what I really find interesting is that you actually have a chapter on the depiction of animals in sculpture at Clonmacnoise. Why was this critical to include and how does this complement or contradict the animal skeletal remains? Yeah, um, I think, I mean, I think we often think of monasteries in very divided ways where you have a sacred part and you have a settlement part. Certainly, and if you look at how people tend to talk about places like Columbic Noise, there's a set of discussions about what the settlement looked like. And then there's a set of discussions about what the sacred precinct looked like. And those tend to be very divided. Um, and, I, you know, I think it's fascinating that the animals show up <laughs> in all their full glory there. And, and, you know, certainly people for centuries, people have looked at this iconography and it struck them how much uh, of the secular world is there. Um, and, and some of that is the animals. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, if you imagine what it would have been like to be walking into these places, I started out talking about, you know, for thousands of people, the signature experience would have been bringing your cattle to Columbic Noise. Um, and that, you know, that would have been the experience, I would think, in, in a very important way. Um, and I, I can imagine you they would have had some sense of what's going on up the hill, but I, I, a lot of it would have been probably you know hard to grapple with and, and maybe not the most immediate thing. Um, well, but imagine if once they make it up the hill or once they get up there, they're seeing the very animals that they brought to the place. Um, and, you know, there's the, you know, the famous cats, uh, you know, reclining with mice in their in their paws um, and those sorts of things. But those are I mean, those that's exactly the kind of entanglement I'm talking about. That is the most sacred central precinct of it. Um, and it's bringing in these kind of mundane, quotidian little pieces of the world um, or specifically um profane pieces um, and trying to uh, entangle them to get back to that, that word to, to mix them all up to create what the experience was. So that's, I mean, I, I, I mean, I see the animals on the crosses as a great demonstration of how important they were. I mean, they, they are part of the experience, even at this level. And they're in very visible locations outside where you would be able to see it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and I can't imagine that they they wouldn't have been as eye catching as they are to people wandering in now. I mean, they, as you said, they're, they they are right front and center. Um, and well, they, I mean, there's a tradition of looking at at the iconography on the cross and whatnot in very didactic ways. And and you know, undoubtedly, they were teaching instruments. But um, I. Uh, love the phenomenological approaches that have taken over in a lot of art history where you know, you're looking at how the crosses made you move and how they made you feel and the experience of being around them. And, you know, that, that's, that, that fits very well with my sense of, of what's going on with these places. Um, 
and, and trying to fold that into not just kind of a, a experience of getting people engaged. You can trick them into the didactic stuff or whatever. But but that, I mean, that is part of the experience that, that these places were intended to make you feel and move in certain ways. Um, and 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 that that involves the whole place. Um, I know we've talked about this a little bit before, but how does Clonmacnoise embody the variety of urbanisms in post-Roman Europe? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the, the icon of post-Roman urbanization are these extraordinary trade settlements, um, you know, where you're seeing items brought from across the world and... Um, those are often very tightly linked to the development of um, increased social hierarchies following along. Um, and and you know, certainly they, they are associated with that. And then the scholarship on it is focused on that. It's sort of understanding, you know, what is it that re-triggers Roman, uh, post-Roman urbanism? Um, and, you know, you look to Charlemagne and all sorts of things like that. Um, but there's, there have always been questions about that. And um, particularly uh, to a certain, to, to um, in England particularly, more so than on the continent, there's been a lingering scholarship of saying, well, yeah, that probably makes sense, but gosh, it's hard to put your finger on where that is. Um, and um, I think um, one of the enduringly fascinating pieces of medieval Ireland is that, I mean, whatever else is going on, the social hierarchies are not as well marked as they are elsewhere. Um, and the gulf between various strata, are, they're there, but you, know, you don't have the accelerating gaps that you do elsewhere. Um, and so, um, once you start seeing a similar set of developments, um, and, and comic noise is not the same as Dublin, there are interesting differences, but you are getting a extraordinary concentration of people, um, who are developing this peculiar urban economy. Um, and, um, I think that points to, you know, you need to have some sort of different explanation for it. Um, and it's important, um, to observe that Ireland is not special or unique in all of this. Um, it isn't like this stuff, you know, it isn't like something's happening at Columbic Noise is not happening somewhere else. Um, but because of the differences, I think there are pieces that um, come to clarity a little bit more easily than they do elsewhere. Um, and uh, I think so that that's the opportunity to see some of the variety um, and, and, and the, the whole range of things that we're producing in these kind of places. And all the different reasons why people get together in this way. And then thinking from the sort of like very big picture to slightly a smaller picture, how does this fit within the early medieval England? Sorry, early medieval Ireland. That's what we're focused on, not England, Ireland. There's been, I think, you know, there's there's been a, for a variety of, of, reasons, there has been a strong effort to identify the development of um, social centralization, develop, identify the development of a market economy in early medieval Ireland, because for a whole variety of really uh, colonial reasons and whatnot, it was assumed that wasn't there. And so it's, you know, the window on the Iron Age kind of thing. Um, and so, um, you know, in reaction to that, I would say, you know, from the 80s onwards, there's a very strong emphasis on saying, no, the same thing is going on in Ireland. You can see the development of commodity production. You can see all these things that you see elsewhere. It's not something um, totally different. Um, but I think that can 
um, slide off into uh, rejecting ways that it is in fact different. Um, and um, uh, I think a lot of the you know questions about whether or not monastic towns exist and those sort of things are fundamentally questions about those sorts of issues. Um, there, there's a wonderful clarity in the mid to late 20th century about what causes urbanism in early medieval Europe. And um, letting go of that clarity is is difficult. Um, and well, and, and the, the association with the development of market economy is a very powerful explanation. Um, but it, I, I think it's an incomplete one. Um, and this is, is trying to... Um, well, partly, frankly, looking back to some of the things that were rejected. So there, there are some things that are written in the early 20th century that are that the mid 20th century is reacting to and saying is wrong, and they were right. They were they were wrong, but they also are worth thinking about um, in in ways that will allow us to understand other things that are going on. Um. On a slightly different note, in the book, you occasionally explain different elements with case studies uh, from either outside Ireland. So you give several examples from the United States or from modern works. What In that case, I'm thinking of um, The Motel of the Mysteries by David McCauley. Why are these important elements to include in your writing? Mostly because the Motel of Mysteries is just a fantastic book. <laughs> you guys are gonna love it. Um, well, but it's it's a great example. You know, the, the the shtick in in that book is that archaeologists from you know a couple of centuries from now are digging up a motel in the middle of the United States, and they mistakenly think it's a shrine and completely misinterpret the whole thing. So it's a, it, that that happens to be a wonderful example of um, a wonderful example of some of the things we we're talking about earlier with kind of misconceptions about what it is that archaeology can do. And it's, it, you know, it, it's a good marker for, um, you know, how people thought of archaeology and how archaeologists thought of archaeology for a long time. Um, some of the other examples, I think, um, you know, there are resonances to long debates about, you know, how we think of ourselves and how we, you know, how we understand human society in lots of different places. Um, and, you know, if you just take urbanism, and urbanism is a fascinating thing that happens all over the globe, completely independently um, from other examples of it. So different groups invent the urban settlements. Um, and so, um, you know, it's, wor- it's, it's hard to know how, you know, you, you, you can only do so much in terms of, of, pursuing those comparisons, but remembering that these are debates that are much larger than what's the difference between Columbic noise and Dublin. I mean, they, they, well, and, and, well, and, and, and they're important to remember because the narratives that are structuring how we understand Columbic noise and Dublin are part of these much larger narratives. So the debate about monastic towns is a debate that, that, you know, goes back centuries, um, about how we understand this stuff. Um, and, and I think, you know, to, to acknowledge that helps to, to see what some of the possibilities are. Um, I'm adding that book to my list, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, it's got all these pen line drawings in it. It's, it's, it is a, it's a great reconstruction of the princess of the, uh, uh, the Usa people, um, you know, with a, a toilet ring on her head. And, and the, uh, so it's, yeah, you take a peek at it. It's fantastic. Um, and then on page 24, you mentioned your goal for the second chapter is to discuss, quote, what tales do archaeologists tell about encounters among strangers in early medieval Ireland? With that in mind, what tale do you want to tell? 
Um, I, you know, I, the, um, I've intentionally in the book referred to these as sanctuary cities um, to have resonance with a much longer and ongoing debate about sanctuary cities and the um, importance of creating spaces for strangers um, for the health of the whole society. Um, and the, you know, the, our ability to be a functioning group depends upon creating these spaces for other people. And we, we talked earlier about, you know, what is a sanctuary city? It, you know, it's, it's a, a literally a place for strangers in the city um, that you could go and expect to get hospitality, expect to get protection. Um, and there's a, a bit in the book where I talk about the um, kind of historiography of sanctuary. Um, and it's another fascinating thing. Most of the story or historiography of sanctuary is about um protecting murderers um, and, you know, how do you handle criminals and that sort of stuff. And there's this whole other world of sanctuary um, that is for strangers um, and for creating that possibility that, you know, the person who shows up your door is not a psychopath who's going to empty your larder. And well, they open possibilities and, and that's, um, I, you know, we don't need to get into the anthropological theory of it all, but, but at the root of it, and that, that's, that's a lot of what this is, is talking about. And, and um, the, a lot of the misreading of what's going on with sanctuary cities is a misreading of Marcel Moses, the gift um, as specifically on not understanding what he's saying about strangers. Um, and he says there's the central thing that we've got to worry about um, with situations like urbanism. So, you know, large complicated groups is that we're dependent on strangers. Um, and he talks about you go at that, you, that's a moment of constantly being an exaggerated fear, but also exaggerated generosity. And you have to have both of those in there. Um, and, um, so that, you know, that the, he's talking about the need for sanctuary. What was your favorite part of the book? <laughs> I think that it's done <laughs> is my favorite part. <laughs> um, let's see. What is my favorite part? Um, I, uh, it's certainly one of the parts that I, I was not what I came when I, when I started writing it, not what I was thinking about the most, but, but came towards the end. It, it is this image of the key experience is just walking into the place. Um, and you know, that experience of going into, um, the environment there and all the, the sights and the smells and the experience of being there, um, as, as a, a central moment. And, and I, I have, I, I keep thinking back to that as a way to hang all these other more abstract debates about Marcel Moses writing and that kind of stuff. It really is about that. And, and that's, and trying to understand the place from that perspective. Do you have any future or ongoing projects that you'd like to mention on the podcast? Sure. I, the biggest project I'm working on right now is an excavation in County Ross Common um, at a place called McDermott's Rock, um, which is a um, central place uh, on an island, a central place for the McDermott's, um, certainly in the later medieval period and um, probably going back further than that. And, and, um, I'm working um, with Tom Finan from St. Louis University and uh, Jimmy Scriver from University of Minnesota Morris. Uh, they have been out there for three years. I was there, uh, sorry, they've been there for two years. I was there last year. We're going to be there again next summer. And um, it's wonderful archaeology. And it, it's producing a phenomenal animal bone assemblage that's going to give us an opportunity to understand, you know, who's gathering on this 
whatever it's a feasting retreat or this gathering spot, who's there, what are they eating? And, and, uh, what, how do they think about that? Who, you know, who's gathering there? And, and what does that suggest about how people in Gaelic areas were responding to all the changes in the 12th, 13th, 14th century? Fun stuff. <laughs> that sounds really fascinating. And I can't wait to hear about the result or what you find more about both the yeah. animal assemblages and the site in general. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your book, John. Thank you. I really, I really appreciate that. It was fun. I really agree. Thank you for the invitation. Um, Dr. Soderbergh's book, Animals and Sacred Bodies in Early Medieval Ireland, Religion and Urbanism at Clonmacnoise, is available now through Lexington Books, an imprint of the Roman and Littlefield Publishing Group. If you'd like to hear more episodes, subscribe to New Books on Irish Studies on the New Books Network website, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. Until next time, stay safe and keep reading.